If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you have a Bible, let's open up to Exodus chapter 2. So if you're new here today, we just embarked on a new series starting in the book of Exodus starting last week. And so we're really excited to dive in here to see what God uh, is going to show us, what he has for us through his word, through his spirit. And uh, two kind of categories of people, if you were gone last week or if you're just like new to your Bible, um, it's good for us to review a little bit. It never hurts to review a little bit. And Scott did this last week, but if you were gone or, again, you're new to your Bible or just anybody else, it's good for us to review and remember context because Exodus doesn't make really sense at all unless we know what preceded it and the context the Exodus finds itself in, okay? So there's a lot of ways we could do that. But today, we're going to go back to Genesis 12. So if you have a Bible, flip back to Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. And what we learn here is that God, just out of his great sovereign will alone, he picks this guy. He puts his special favor, no credit to this guy alone, only to God alone. He picks this guy, Abram, and says, I'm going to use you, Abram. And through you, I'm going to set the course for salvation for the whole world. All those, ultimately, that will come and trust and treasure Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I'm going to start that whole process. It's going to take a while. But I'm going to start the whole process with you, Abram. And look at what he said to Abram here, Genesis chapter 12. Some centuries before the events we're going to look at today. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's a lot that we could say here that we're not going to say today, but just a couple quick ones. God basically says to Abram, from you there's going to come many, many descendants. See that? A great nation, right? And as Scott reminded us so well last week, that came to pass, right? Against all odds, the odds were stacked against Abram for this promise. If you know anything about your Bible, you know that God overcomes um, this problem oftentimes when people can't have kids. And Abram and Sarah... They're too old to have kids, right? God overcomes that. His, his, he, he stays good to his word. And against all odds, this promise comes true. And Abraham and Sarah have a son. And his name is Isaac. And God does this miracle. It's amazing. And he keeps his promise. And then Isaac is up against it too. Like, how am I going to find a wife? And how am I going to, you know, continue this promise that's supposed to come from my dad to me? And that happens. He finds a wife. They have a kid. A kid named Jacob. Same with him. A lot of opposition, right? But Jacob has 12 sons, okay? And eventually, due to a famine in their land, this family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons, the great-grandkids, the, the grandkids and the great-grandkids 
of Abram, this is key now, like we learned last week, but just review, they all moved down to Egypt because of a famine, okay? That's providential. That's intentional. And what happens is they stay there. They stay down in Egypt, and they have kids, and more kids, and more kids, and more kids, and more kids. And this happens for a few centuries. Until the Pharaoh that was good to Abram's family initially, well, he's dead and gone, long gone. And there's a new ruler, a new Pharaoh, a new king of Egypt, a new king of this superpower, this world superpower, Egypt. And because of all... Abram's great, 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 great grandkids, so many generations now, so many family members of Abram in the land of Egypt, like we learned last week, Pharaoh gets really threatened. And he enslaves them. And up to this point where we find ourselves in our text today in Exodus chapter 2, they've been enslaved for 400 years. So think about this promise to Abram. In one sense, the promise has come to pass. There's a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name great so you will be a blessing. So so these people have come into existence, right? The promise has come to pass. God has used Abram to make a huge people for himself. But the other part of the promise is still held up. How? Well, what's the other part of the promise? You're going to be a blessing to the whole world. See that last sentence? All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Well, how's that going to happen when you're enslaved in Egypt? You have no freedom to do what you want. You have no freedom to be a blessing when there's a wicked ruler that just wants to do you harm. They can't do this promise. What do they need? They need a rescue. They need a rescue. And that's what Exodus is all about. Rescue. God bringing his people out from slavery and freeing them to be his missional people for his glory. Let me say that again. God bringing his people out from slavery and freeing them to be his missional people for his glory. And just like many centuries before our text for today, God comes, sovereign will alone, not, not any credit to Abram. He just picks Abram, centers on this one guy, says, I'm going to use you. It's going to be amazing. Many centuries later now, God is doing it again, and he's centering it on Moses. Now, we're looking at Exodus chapter 2. What I want to do is start with this comment that kind of comes as a general comment, starting at verse 23. And then we're going to get into the details of the rest of the text in a second. This won't be on the screen. Um, Oh, it is on the screen. You guys are on the ball. Thank you. Uh, I called an audible in the first service uh, and did this on the fly, uh, but they're listening. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, And it's on the screen here. This is verse 23, Exodus chapter 2. Check it out. During those many days, the, uh, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. It's like we talked about, 400 years, right? And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, 
with Isaac and with Jacob. Remember like we just talked about? This is, this is like, this should be a, like Genesis 12. Remember that, 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 that whole Genesis 12 deal? That's what the author here is cluing into. Covenant with Abraham? God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. You're going to be a people in my place, with my presence, on my proactive mission. That's who you're called to be. And I'm going to make sure that happens. I know you're in slavery now, but I'm going to make sure that happens. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I just want you to see something real simple from this from these short verses that wrap up Exodus chapter 2. When God says there that he heard them and God remembered his covenant, it's not that God has a bad memory. That's how we read this, okay? When we talk about remembering, it's remembering always coupled with forgetting. But this isn't saying that God has a bad memory. The Bible sometimes uh, speaks differently than we speak in everyday language. So when, when, when the Bible says that God remembered something or specifically remembered his covenant, that's kind of like this. Now, do you guys, um, are you guys tracking with Chronicles of Narnia? Yes? Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? Show of hands. Let's just see. Okay, see, like, that's kind of a cultural phenomenon, right? It's not at Star Wars level yet, but it's still pretty good, right? Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? And it's kind of like this. When, when the Bible says God remembered his covenant, it's kind of like in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, where it's all winter. And the ice queen is, is that, is that her name, the ice queen? White witch! Not the, well, she's kind of the ice queen, right? <laughs> See, my family's all dialed in the stuff. I'm just, I'm hearing the second half of my wife. You could just come up and tell the story if you want to. So from what she tells me. From what she tells me, it's all, it's, it's the white witch, and she's like ruling and reigning at Narnia and dominating, and it's always winter, right? But it's never Christmas, right? That's bad. That's sad. But then they hear what? They hear this phrase, Aslan is on the move, right? Aslan is on the move. And what does that mean? That means the snow starts to melt, and the trees start to bud, and things turn from white to green, Aslan is on the move. What does that mean? That means something's about to go down. Aslan is up to something. And we can see kind of some glimmers of hope in this kingdom of ice, right? And that's what the author of Exodus is getting at here when he says God remembered his covenant. Something amazing is about to go down. And and they're just setting the stage now, chapter 1, chapter 2, Chapter 3 and following, it really starts to get interesting. I mean, there's stuff here for a movie. Like, well, I guess they didn't make an Exodus movie. Don't go watch it. It's horrible. But they, they don't need to screw it up. They can just take it straight from the pages here. And there's some good drama, intense conflict, right? Because why? Because God remembered his covenant. And he's about to do something really significant, all right? I just wanted you to see that, Okay. All right, so let's open up to Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Well, speaking of movies, you know how when you go to a movie, say like Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise, or my favorites, the Jason Bourne movies with Matt Damon? Almost always, this is just good storytelling, right off the bat in the movie, in these action movies especially, you've got these main actors 
in these crazy scenarios where their life's on the line, the bad guy's chasing them, you know, it's like this crazy, tense situation, what's going to happen? Like, they're doing that to keep your attention, right? To, to, to let you know that, man, this is going to be a great movie. So the li- their life's on the line, what's going to happen, main character, they could get killed. But we all know deep down that this main actor and their character is going to be preserved. Why? Because we watched the trailer, right? Yeah, there's, exactly. And so these guys, Matt Damon, Tom Cruise, or whoever, they're the money makers. They're not going to bump these guys off in the first 10 minutes, or none of us will go to the movie, right? But see, even if we don't know anything about the movie, we know that that's not how these movies work. And here's the deal. These main actors will be preserved because the author of the movie has big things in store for the main character. Seeing them preserved at the beginning of the story tells us where this thing is going. Like they got a mission in this movie, and that mission will not be thwarted. Okay? Well, that's kind of the big point I want you to see in Exodus chapter 2. The author of the movie has big things in store for the main character. And we're introduced to Moses. And we got two scenes today, one from his birth and one from his adult life, okay? So let's start with this first scene starting in chapter 1. Oh, sorry, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Why did she hide him? Well, if you missed last week, uh, there's this crazy gender-based genocide happening from the, the maniacal king of Egypt, the pharaoh. And these people are getting too numerous, God's people, so we got to thin them out, just kill all the baby boys. Horrible. So that's why she's going to hide him. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer... She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Can you imagine that, moms? Making a boat for your baby to put him in the river. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. So Moses' mother, she knew it was just a matter of time, right? You can't hide the kid forever. They grow. They don't keep quiet. So she decided rather than probably see this child murdered in front of me, I'm going to roll the dice. Better to put this child in the river and hope for the best than have it be murdered. I mean, but imagine this gut-wrenching scenario. Parents, moms, anybody. Verse 4, and his sister stood at a distance to know where, what would be done to him. So older sister's kind of curious, snooping around a little bit, wants to know what's going on here. How's this going to go down? She's sneaking up on mom. That's why it says there that she stood at a distance. She's curious. Imagine the horror of seeing your brother placed in the water. So at at this point in the story, if you were hearing it or reading it for the first time, you'd probably be holding your breath, right? What's going to happen? Is this this character going to die? Then something interesting happens. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. 
while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. So Egyptian princess comes down to the water to bathe and sees the baby floating in this little boat. And as God's providence would have it, her motherly instincts kick in. And she has compassion on crying Moses. See, what she was supposed to do was kill Moses, because that's what everyone in Egypt was supposed to do when you see one of these Hebrew children, especially a boy. But she doesn't do that. Verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, so his sister, she's, she's sneaking up on the situation. She's following down the river as, as Moses floats down. She approaches Pharaoh's daughter and says, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now again, like, climb into the world of this text. This is heavy stuff. Think about if you were Moses' mother here. So big sister jumps in, approaches royalty. That's a bold move. But we hear that, that Pharaoh's daughter, princess, she's a woman of compassion. And now consider this. Big sister goes and gets Moses' mom and tells her all that went down. And now how crazy is this? Moses' own mom is going to get paid to nurse her own son. Isn't that wild? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away. It should have been take your child away. Man, when this child grew older, she, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. I mean, just think about how crazy this is. Think of just Moses' mom for a second. It helps you climb into the world of the text. It's always so good for us to do this. She's given up this child once already in the face of this harrowing scenario of the murder of all of these young baby boys. She's given him up once to the river already out of sheer desperation. And now she has to give him up again after having the intimacy of nursing him, right, moms? And even worse, she's given him up to the kingdom of the oppressor. Like Moses' mom had a hard life. It's a hard, hard thing to have to walk through. But what's the big takeaway here? I don't think that's the big takeaway. It's important for us to climb into the world of the text and think about it. But what's the big takeaway the big takeaway is Moses is supposed to be dead. The river could have killed him. Pharaoh's daughter rightfully could have killed him. She was supposed to. But he survives. So what is an original audience reading this for the first time? What do you think they're thinking? What are they hearing? What are they learning? Well, they're learning that God has plans for Moses. 
God has plans for this Moses. God will preserve the Savior of his people. And if the Savior is preserved, the people will be preserved as well. Well, let's keep reading and see what happens next. Verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, all right, so we flash forward, right? He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. So, so fast forward many years. We don't learn anything about Moses' childhood in, in the palace of the king of Egypt, what that was like. How is it that Moses knew that he was one of God's chosen people? He wasn't Egyptian. He was an Israelite. He was a Hebrew. How did he look? The Bible just doesn't tell us, but somehow he knew this. And so verse 11, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. There it is, his own people. So he looks upon the suffering of this people that he's identified with and sees this injustice perpetrated from Egyptian on one of his people, the Hebrew people, God's people. And what does he do? Well, he commits an injustice in the, fa- in the face of this injustice, right? Verse 12, look at it. He looked this way and that. Anybody watching? Anybody can see what I'm about to do? And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and then hit him in the sand. So I guess no one's watching, and now I've got to co- cover up the evidence. I've got to hide the body. He knew this was wrong. God doesn't raise up people because they've climbed the ladder of good deeds and have earned it. God loves to use broken, weak people, messed up, sinful people. And we see it again with Moses. He knew this was wrong. That's why he hid the body. And now he's going to be confronted with his sin and hypocrisy. Look at verse 13. And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. So two of his own people. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed, killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. So Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. So what he thought was hidden, the body, and what he did, isn't so hidden anymore, right? It's all out in the open. So here's, here's the kicker, verse 15. This is, again, a big problem. When Pharaoh heard of it, this horrible thing that Moses did, Evidently, he wants justice. He wants revenge. When, Mo- when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. So what does Moses do? Well, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So again, Moses' life is in danger. And now he's not quite as innocent in the adult scenario as he was as a baby, of course. But he still faces the death penalty. Pharaoh wants to kill him. So what does he do? He runs. He runs to Midian, and he survives. And what happens there is in 16 through 22 in your Bibles. And he's taken in by this family, and the head of the family gives his daughter to be married to Moses, and they have a child. So again, God is being gracious to Moses. He should have been dead, but instead he finds a wife and a child. So what do you think this original audience reading Exodus 2 for the first time, what do you think they're learning? Imagine you don't know anything you are reading at all. 
And this is, this is all the first time. What do you learn? Well, again, it seems like Moses is up to, or I'm sorry, God is up to something with this Moses guy. Right? We learn that God has plans for this Moses. Twice or three times he should be dead. The river, Pharaoh's daughter, now Pharaoh. But he escapes with his life all three times. In both scenes, the king of Egypt wants to kill Moses as a baby, as an adult. Once it was indirectly, right? And once it's more directly. The arch enemy of God's people wants to destroy God's appointed means of bringing about a blessing to his people. The enemy of God's people has tried to kill him twice. Once directly, once indirectly, but God will have his man. God will keep his promises. God will bring about his desired outcomes. So what does a first audience and us learn? You can trust this God. He's trustworthy. His promises, they never fail. Even in the face of death threats from the highest office in the land, God's plan will not be shut down, slowed down, or thwarted. God will preserve the Savior of his people. And if the Savior is preserved, the people will be preserved as well. That's good news for us. That's good news for us. So let's fast forward a few centuries and see how this story, Exodus 2 story, connects with our story. See, we can see whispers of the gospel even in Exodus 2, this early account of Moses' life. Many centuries later, after Exodus 2, another deliverer comes on the scene. And he too, God's main representative, received the death threat and the death sentence from the ruling authorities. But this time, he wasn't preserved from death, at least not right away. The reason why is that his death was the deliverance. His death was the exodus for God's people. His death was the appointed means to release his people from slavery. His death was the way in, his, in which his people would be set free. And even in death, God preserved the Savior of his people. How? Because resurrection happened. That's the ultimate preservation, right? Conquering of death. See, for, for us today... This Exodus 2 doesn't mean as much to us now as it did that first audience who's just learning about this God that they serve. See, that first audience, they learn that God's plans will never be thwarted through the preservation of his appointed leader of the rescue mission. <coughs> but for us, there's another Exodus that has far greater meaning. See, we too rejoice in what we learn from another Exodus. The Exodus from an ancient Jewish tomb by the God-man, Jesus. He walked out alive. He exited that tomb, slavery over, death defeated. Jesus, the leader of the rescue, was preserved by God. So this death sentence is not the end of the story. There's, there's way more movie to be watched, right? There are big plans in store for this main character. And those plans now 
happen by his spirit through his people that are the new post-Exodus people of God. The church, the new people of God who are saved and have been given a mission with God's presence. And God's plans for his people will never be thwarted. God will preserve the Savior of his people. He has preserved the Savior of his people. And if the Savior is preserved, the people will be preserved as well. Just, just like the wicked rulers in Moses' day couldn't kill him thwart God's promises, just like the wicked rulers in Jesus' day, Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, they couldn't kill him, ultimately, and thwart God's promises to his people. There's no wicked ruler anywhere in the world who can completely snuff out God's people and thwart God's promises to his church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never overcome it. Sometimes we can get kind of nervous, right, about who we are as God's people. There's challenges, there's persecutions in our culture and many other cultures around the world. But think about this. Be encouraged by this. Egypt at that time was the superpower in the world. When the Pharaoh makes orders, they happen. He wants Moses dead. Can't do it. Rome, 2,000 years ago, the world power. No one could stand in the face of the conquering agenda of imperial Rome. From Spain to India, the most dominant military force the world's ever seen. They tried to kill Jesus, and they did, but they didn't. They couldn't do it. See, they're no match for the king of kings, right? So, Vine family today, remember who you worship, right? If God's plans can't be thwarted by Pharaoh in Egypt and the emperor or whoever in Rome, we're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. I know there's political strife right now. It's happening here. And honestly, if we just kind of get out of our little ethnocentric headspace, it's happening all over the world. It's chaotic times we live in. But governments come, they go, governments go. Listen to me. No ruler anywhere is any match for the king of kings. That should jump off the pages of Exodus 2. It jumps off all the pages of the Bible. God's people were okay here. His leader, his guy, we're going to preserve him. This plan is going to move forward. Because the tomb is empty, and Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. The plan's moving forward. Nothing can stop it. God is the one who raises up. God is the one who tears down. God has promised that he has, is, and will raise up his church until he returns. Since Jesus exited that tomb, his spirit is alive and well in his new new post-Exodus people. The church, God's new post-Exodus people, they're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. So be encouraged this morning. Egypt couldn't snuff it out. Rome can't snuff it out. 
whatever we're dealing with today, can't snuff it out. That's a promise, so fear not. God has preserved the Savior of his people. And if the Savior is preserved, the people will be preserved as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth that we stand in, that we see in your word, that you have plans to glorify yourself and to create a people for your glory. We thank you that you've done that in Exodus. We thank you that you've done that in our day as well. In Jesus' name, amen.